Come on in. Everybody got a seat? Are we good? I'm so glad to see y'all today. I mean, the weather changed like crazy land, and you're still here. Like half of us go down with like the flu when the weather changes, and you still came, so way to go. But if you're sick, just don't cough on anybody or touch them, okay? Especially not me. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, pray with me, and then we're going to get going, okay? Father, um, we come to you today, and we, we thank you for Paul, bold, wordy Paul. Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to watch this life lived out and to see it documented and to see him encouraging others to live their life following after Jesus. And I pray today that we can see ourselves in Paul. I pray today that we see ourselves in Titus and, and what you have for us because you want the best for us. Lord, um, may we see those places where rather than accepting the good that we, we want for the better, Thank you, Father. Thank you that you've given us that opportunity. Um, and we thank you for your son. We thank you that he came to this earth to set everything right, Lord. May we follow hard after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have very important information to share with you. I have been told that I look preppy today by Don Leith. Therefore, I don't know, I think I earned some sort of, some sort of star on my name tag because... Don is the super prep, and so I feel like next week I need to undo that a little bit, so just who knows what's coming. That should get, hey, come back next week. You never know what I might look like then. How's that for incentive? Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're here, and you know what? I say this all the time, and I mean this. I hope you understand how sincerely I mean this. Um, we have new people that came this week, and, and I, I, I love all y'all old people. <laughs> like I said that. Wait for Yeah experienced people. I love the experienced people, but I really love when new people come because I want you to know if you're here for the first time this week, please know this. Anytime, and if you've come over and over and you want to bring somebody, anytime people can jump right in. That's the beauty of God's word. For whatever reason, you're here this week and he knew and he knows. So just trust that. Um, if we go through some of this and you feel like you need to go backward a little bit, well, I have great news. This is the first week that we even opened the book of Titus. So you're not that far behind. And here's the other thing. I, I needed a little feedback on this. You only read six verses this week. Who, who had trouble fitting that in? Liars. Come on. Uh, I, I, I am curious, though, because if you've done my Bible studies in the past, I have gotten in big trouble because people will be like, oh, my word, you made us read three chapters. I'm like, you mean you got to read three? It's a gift. And then so I'm like, okay, cool. They're gonna, their minds are going to be blown because you're going to open up day one homework and it's going to be one verse. Who liked that? Who hated that? Yeah. Oh, well, see, I cannot win. That's it. It's over. It's sometimes challenging, isn't it? Because sometimes if there's a whole lot of words, we can just continue to dig and dig. And sometimes when there's just a few words, you have to ask him over and over, what is this for me? What does this mean for me? I have no idea. And so I got good news. That's the way it's going to be the rest of the whole class. The, these letters are brief, and so we get an opportunity to drill down into them just one sentence at a time and see what God has to say. And so I hope that you're going to take the opportunity to look up words, words that you think you know what they mean. You probably don't really know what they mean. And so use those tools, your dictionary, the Blue Letter Bible, anything. I don't know. Ask a friend. What does this word mean? It's really interesting when you stop and pause and look at everything word by word. So I hope you will do that. Um, I did want to share some encouragement with you. When you open your homework this week, 
You're going to like how I use the word encouragement. When you open your homework this week, you know every other week you've had four questions, right? Five days of homework, four questions. Completely manageable. We can do that. That's one 30-minute episode on HGTV. You can handle it. Five days, four questions. Guess what? I got great news. This week, there are no questions. This week, you're going to open it and see a blank page. Some of you might have a seizure when you see that. Don't freak. It's going to be fine. You're fine. Some of you are going to be like, yes. Now I can get out my watercolors and draw and color. And Hey, the beauty of the way we're doing homework is that you still always have four questions. You can flip backwards if you want to read what those questions are because sometimes I forget. But the open page, the blank palette, you're going to find that it's a super cool thing because once you settle into it and stop looking at it like emptiness and instead looking at it like opportunity, you're going to realize some weeks God's going to say a lot to you about application. He's going to say a lot. And then some weeks it's going to be real short. And so the beauty of the, the blank page, right, is that your page gets to look very different just like your walk with Jesus looks very different. So don't freak. If you freak, you just call your small group leader and she'll freak right along with you, but it'll be fine. You're going to be fine. Five days of homework, four questions, you can do it. And think of me every time you watch HGTV because that's always how I think about it. 30 minutes, you can do this. All right. If you haven't already, open up your Bible to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Last week, those of you who were not with us last week, last week we did background. All we did was the background of our author. Who's the author of the book of Titus? Paul, right. So last week, that's all we did. We look at the book of Acts, which is a historical um, account of the first 30 years of the church after Jesus. And we learned about our guy, Paul. Well, now that you are equipped with all this information about who Paul is, we go into listening in on the letter that he's writing to his pal, Titus. And so with this week, here's what we're going to do. You had six verses to study, and they were packed packed with information. I don't know how your homework sheets looked, but mine, I was like, dude, who who knew I could get this much out of like 12 words? But he had so much to tell us. I want you to know um, the way this, this, let me, let me say this. So the way that we're going to go through these letters, sometimes the breakout of the verses is going to look a little weird. Like for example, this week, because of how I had to break it out, you went over just a tiny little part, I think in day five, about um, the actual elders that he was choosing and some very specific information about those people. But I'm going to hold that content till next week. And next week, we're going to hit that whole, the whole thing and all the details about elders. I think it's verses six through nine or something. We're going to go hard in on that. So sometimes this lecture part may look a little different. Um, so today, all we're going to talk about is essentially four verses, a little bit of verse five. Okay, so we're going to talk about Titus one verses one through four, really. It's one of Paul's longest introductions to a letter. Whenever you read these letters that Paul wrote, he always starts with this this salutation, this introduction. And this is one of the longest ones. Um, We're setting the stage here. This is what's what's something to think about when we go into this. I want you to know this. Um, In Acts, I believe it was Acts 9. Forgive me if I'm wrong. In Acts 9, so when the Pentecost occurred, that's when the Holy Spirit came on the people that were the um, church that were going to be sent out and share the word of Jesus after he had already ascended to heaven. When that occurred, there were some Jews that were there that went to live in Crete. Okay, Crete is the place where all of this is taking place. Titus, the dude that's receiving the letter, he's in Crete. It's an island. Okay, so these Jews that were there at Pentecost saw everything, all that. It was amazing, unbelievable. Okay, we got to go back home to our island. We got to tell everybody. We got to start these churches. They're the ones 
who have come to Crete and started these churches, okay? Jewish background. A lot of them had Jewish background. So what you're going to see as we go through this is there's going to be some muddy um, understandings, and, and, and some of these people that started churches are going to try to merge some of their old Jewish tradition in with this new Christian belief, and it's going to be confusing, and that's one of the reasons that Paul sends Titus, is we got to get this straight. we got to set these churches right so they head the right, head the right way, and they don't get confused. Okay, so, so that's kind of the background. So they came with some baggage and they needed some guidance. Did anybody come in here today with some baggage and need some guidance? Yeah, big hand in the back. <laughs> Me too. We have much to learn from Paul. So the letter was intended for Titus, but it was also going to serve as a blueprint for planting and building healthy churches. This is a blueprint that you're reading that's going to be the foundation to so many churches that will survive and thrive teaching about Jesus. Paul begins telling us in this letter with these first few words, I mean, first few sentences of introduction. He begins by telling us who he is. He tells us why he's here. Then he turns the microphone over to his buddy Titus and he says, this is who you are and this is why you're here. And so let's open the book of Titus and see what he has to say. Because here's what's cool. Who I am, Paul. Who I am, Titus. Why I'm here. It all has a lot to tell us about who we are and why we're here. So open your Bibles to Titus 1. I'm going to read a section of the scripture, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Okay? So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. We're going to talk about who Paul is and why Paul's here. From his own mouth, from his own pen. Verse 1 starts this way. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. By the command of God, our Savior. That's Paul's voice. Okay, that's how he begins his letter. There's some things that we learn about Paul. And we learn about Paul and we know that this is what's so beautiful. Is, is Last week we talked about everywhere Paul went, everything Paul said. From the moment he had his transformation on the road to Damascus. All that he was about was telling people who Jesus was. I want you to know who he is. I want you to follow him. And I want your life to be transformed like mine was. That's Paul. And so he tells us a few things about himself in these verses, in this introduction to the letter. The first thing he tells us is that he is a slave. The word in the ESV is servant. The actual Greek is literally bond servant, which means slave. When you think about the term slave, like sometimes, well, all, all the time, it's a negative word, but I want you to consider this. At the time, this word could mean a couple of different things. It certainly meant that, that this person was under some authority. For sure it meant that. It also um, meant that it was most often an involuntary position. In other words, I don't have a choice, okay, if I'm a slave. But times there were, there were situations where being a slave or a bondservant meant that I'm devoted to another, but here's the kicker, but I have to disregard my own needs and wants in order to be devoted to this person, a slave. That's what Paul says. The first words out of Paul's mouth is, I am a servant 
of God. Interestingly, he says a servant of God here in all the letters that he wrote. Do you remember how many letters he wrote? Yeah, he wrote 13. 13 letters. The majority of our New Testament is Paul. Well, in all his other letters, he usually calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting that he chose this one letter to say this. Well, some scholars believe that possibly what he's trying to say is there is no difference. If I say I'm a servant of God, that means I am a servant of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is Lord. Make sense? So he says that I'm a slave. I'm a slave. And, he, and he, um, he, he's using this term, and he's, this is what I thought was cool too. He's very humble, isn't he? Remember what we learned last week when he stood in front of all those people that, in Jerusalem that wanted to kill him, and he stood up and he kind of gave this whole history of who he is? Like he threw his resume out so they would be quiet and listen. Well, right here, the only, the only description he gives of himself to his buddy Titus and in turn through the churches that will be developed is that he's a servant of God. I want that to be who I say I am. He's a servant of God. The second thing we know about Paul is that he was sent. He uses the term apostle. Now, for me, that, that, that gets confusing sometimes, right? Because when I think of apostle, I think of what? What do you guys think of? The 12, right? The, the disciples that followed Jesus around and stuff. Okay, well, I wanted to share with you that term really has two different meanings, and you'll see them a lot through the course of the New Testament especially. Apostle can mean, it can be technically defined, and it can also be generally defined. Okay, so l- let me share with you one um, commentary, how they defined it. I want you to remember this when you look at the word apostle. Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is both a technical and a general term in Scripture. Technically, it refers to the twelve. Those were the disciples who were the eyewitnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. Paul was also an apostle in this way. And then I thought this was funny. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 1 Corinthians is another letter he wrote. He refers to himself. Are you ready? You're going to write this down. It's kind of funny. He calls himself abnormally born. (laughs) You know what that means? It means I came to know Jesus and I came to be an apostle with a first-hand account in a very different way. Jesus appeared to him on a road, didn't he? And spoke to him directly and transformed him specifically. And so so while Paul is, he's kind of an asterisk, he's he's an apostle in the technical sense, there's also a way that you're going to see the word apostle in a general sense, and this is what it is. The term apostle also has a general meaning that means that applies to every one of us, for we are sent ones, as those who go on behalf of Jesus Christ. This speaks to our calling and authority as missionaries of our Savior. In other words, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you like it or not, you are considered an apostle. Because what does he tell us to do? To go and make disciples, doesn't he? Jesus himself says that. And so we're the apostle in the general sense. Paul and the 12, those guys, they're the apostle in the technical sense. Does that make sense to you? It's an important word. It means that he was sent to preach and rely on God's word and share the truth of Jesus Christ to increase faith, knowledge, and godliness. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. He had a big job. He had a big job. So he was a slave. He was sent. And then he was also selected. He was chosen. In this scripture here, we're going to see these... um, 
this buzzword, you know, God's elect. And sometimes we talked about that a little bit more in depth in Ephesians, but sometimes when you see that term, people get a little wigged out, right? Because we're like, oh, what does that mean? How does that, what does that have to do with me? Didn't I make a decision for Jesus? Let me just, I'm going to move through this quickly, but let me share with you um, a way to, to wrap your head around the idea of being elect, okay? The idea of being elect means that you have entrusted your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior. The elect are the ones who have entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ as Savior. That's Paul. When Paul was found by Jesus on the Damascus Road, let me just share a little. This is, I don't have the verse to refer to this, but I'm just going to say it like it's fact. Um, Paul didn't accidentally appear on a road and Jesus accidentally appeared to him and God just said, Hey man, let's just throw a stone and whoever it hits, we're going to call. It didn't work like that. See, God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. Good stuff, bad stuff. And so God saw Paul and chose Paul. God knew that Paul would be his mouthpiece. God knew that Paul was going to be used to write the majority of the New Testament. He was chosen. Well, in that same section, you see that we see the term God's elect, which kind of represents, think of it this way, it represents God's sovereignty, okay? It represents that the fact that God has choice and has power and knows all, okay, God's sovereignty. But you also see the term the faith. You know what that means? That's on you. That's human responsibility, okay? Salvation and the decision of faith, Chris saying at 15 at ski camp, at Young Life Camp and Ski Camp in Colorado saying, yeah, I want in on this Jesus thing. I'm in. That was a decision that I made. Okay? Salvation and the decision of faith go hand in hand. They're never to be separated. Paul sees no dichotomy. There's no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the sovereign work of grace. Salvation is the sovereign gift of grace that you receive when you make a decision for Jesus. You know, I, th- I think about this, and, and the idea of sanctification is kind of a big churchy word, and a lot of times I kind of just skip right over that. You know, you know what sanctification is in the, in the Chris definition? It's this. It's, it's making a really good decision, but then taking that decision and living it out for something even better. You know? So, like, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, it's really good. I mean, it's eternally good. Let's not get that wrong. But you know what God wants for you? He wants better. We've talked about this before. Could Paul have, um, have had the transformation on the road to Damascus, had this massive transformation, been blind, now he can see, hears the voice, sees the light, all the things, and then gone back and lived his life? Could he have? Yeah. Do we do that? We do. I'm just being honest. There's plenty of times in my life where I can look back and go, I made a really good decision for Jesus in Colorado at Young Life Camp. And then I went back to live in the same life Chris lived before I knew Jesus. No difference. Sanctification is making a decision and living out the decision. For me, in my life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a visual example of that. Um, so, so there's this wonderful, amazing thing that our church does. And you don't have to only go to Rock Point to be a part of this. But we have an opportunity to go on these family mission trips. Okay? And about six or seven years ago, Don Jones, where are you? There she is. Find her afterwards. She can tell you all about it. About six or seven years. Oh, that's a great picture. Wow. It's real big. Um, 
Six or seven years ago, uh, my friends said, you know, you need to bring your, your kids and you need to go with us to Belize and, and help us teach kids about Jesus and dance around and sweat and do awesome things. And, and I thought, okay, you know, so we made a decision to go to a meeting and find out more. We're just going to find out more. That was a good decision. Good decision. Then we made a decision to discuss it as a family. Great decision. And then we made a decision to take a step. And our decision was that we will sign up and we will pay the money and we will buy the tickets and we will go and bring the bug spray and the sunscreen and we will go. So we made this decision. It was a great decision. But you know what got better? You know how the decision got better? When we showed up and lived out the decision. Because there is no possible way that these pictures that you're looking at right now can help you understand what it is like to live a decision. But I want you to know something. Um, Making a decision to go was a good decision. But maybe one of the best things that's ever happened in the life of my family is to go and be present and live out the decision. And my friend Don will tell you all about it if you want to hear more about it. But that's what sanctification is. You make a decision, it's good, but you live it out, it's better. Belize, the decision was good, the living it out was better. What I believe will affect how I live. And how I live will demonstrate what I believe. Are you jumping around in a a sweaty church with a bunch of kiddos because you love Jesus so much? Those are the decisions that we have to make in life. Decide, live out your decision. Serving faith, saving faith leads to living out the faith. That's who Paul is. Well, Paul is a slave. He's sent, he's selected, and he's sanctified. He chooses to make a decision, and then he chooses to live it out. So why is Paul here? Why is he here? Paul, our slave, our servant, our apostle, he shares with Titus in these first few verses that he's here for a very specific purpose. He's here to preach God's word so that Jesus will be made known, and it comes in two parts. It comes in the first is is that he's going to share the faith. You know what that means? That's sharing the saving faith. That's sharing the fact that believing in Jesus is going to give you grace that alone Jesus is the only one that can give you. He uses words like hope. You see that? The word like hope, which means you're confidently expecting something that you don't have yet. He uses the term eternal life. And, And I want you to understand something. When he shares about eternal life, In verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, you've got these people, right, that may or may not have heard about Jesus, but possibly have heard some of the things he's taught. And they don't really know, but what they do know is that there's something to this, and I have hope in understanding it. And so when he says eternal life, this is the beauty of it. It's not just after you die, it's now. Eternal life starts now, I heard an author say this once, I thought it was so beautiful. The idea of, of the afterlife, the idea of the eternal life means that heaven crashes into earth the minute you make the decision. And, and that's what Paul is desperately hoping these people understand. That they can have a hope of eternal life that begins now and goes on forever. And that they can also put all that weight on the character of God. He says, what does he say about God? God cannot do what? He never lies. 
He never lies. This is significant. You know why it's significant to us? We're like, yeah, duh, it's God. He never lies. Okay, but let me clarify something. Go backward for a minute and think about your audience and think about what's going on. Here's what's happening. You have Paul writing to Titus. Titus will be sharing all of this and needs encouragement to share with the Cretans. Here's what we know. Um, The Cretans at the time were entrenched in Greek mythology. Okay, Greek philosophy. You know what you can find? And you Google this. I promise you, you'll find it. Type in this. Greek gods who lie. And it's like boom, 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 boom. So these Greek gods that they're following after, that they're wanting to be more like before they know Jesus as the one and only Savior, are all liars and cheaters. And they trick and they deceive to get ahead and to beat and benefit. That's what the Greek mythology is. That's what the stories are about. The other thing you need to know is that, that the weight of the character of God matters because Satan, what does is, what is John refer to Satan to? I mean, Jesus said it himself, actually. In John 8, he calls Satan the father of what? Lies. So you have the enemy who is the antithesis of who Jesus is, and he's considered the father of lies. I want to pause for a second and remind you today, sitting here in this room in Flower Mound, Texas, if you have something being whispered into your ear that doesn't sound like the God of the universe who doesn't lie, if you have somebody or some voice or some intuition or some feeling that's telling you something that is in conflict of God's word, I'm going to tell you right now that's not him because he doesn't lie. That's the enemy. And I, I, I don't know, if you're like me, I listen to the enemy a lot more than I listen to the God who never lies. And I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. Because the world is full of lies. Satan is the father of lies. The Greek gods lied and cheated. And here's the other thing. In verse 12, you're going to learn a little bit more about this later. The Cretans themselves, the people that are starting these churches, the communities, you know what they're known as? liars. In verse 12, you're going to see even one of their own, even one of their most beloved leaders in the Cretan world says, yeah, man, that's who we are. That's what we do. That's our culture. So when Paul says that, that, that God never lies, it means more to them than maybe it means to you today. Crazy, right? So all of this, the hope for eternal life, the decision for faith, all rests on a God who never lies. In John 6, 37 through 40, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Jesus is saying very specifically some things about him and about his father. He says this, every person the father gives me eventually comes running to me. And once that person is with me, I hold on and I don't let go. I came down from heaven not to follow my own whim, but to accomplish the will of the one who sent me. And he goes on to say, this is what my father wants. This is what God's will is. Are you ready? That anyone who sees the son and trusts who he is and what he does and then aligns with him will enter real life, eternal life. That's from Jesus' own mouth he says this. The will of God is that you're sitting in here today and he wrangled you up and brought you in here. I don't know if it's because of free childcare. I don't know it's because I don't know what it was. If your friend forced you to come, like my friend forced me to come to Bible study the first time, I don't know. But he knows. And his will is for you to know him and understand who he is by trusting in Jesus Christ and making a decision and then living out a decision. Hope for eternal life built on the character of God. 
He doesn't lie. He makes promises. The second part of why Paul is here is to develop godliness. He is here to develop godliness. And we used that term a minute ago, sanctification. It's real similar to what he's talking about here. Developing godliness, deeper understanding, choosing to live out your faith. That's what he wants. You know what I think is so cool? I love the fact that all the things that Paul is, who Paul is, he wants to share it so that we can be that person. It's not like he's not this guy and he's like, well, let me tell you how to do life, but I'm not going to do it that way. I'm just going to tell you how to do it. He didn't tell us anything that he's not already experienced and believing and living. Develop godliness. There's an important theme there. That godliness thing, you're only going to see the word one time in the letter of Titus. But you know what you will see a lot of times? You're going to see repetition of this word, good work. The idea of good work, meaning not good work to gain salvation, good work to show proof of your salvation. Good work to show that I made a decision and I'm living out the decision and I can't not. I can't make a decision and stand in a church with a bunch of kiddos jumping around and dancing and singing and not be in it. Developing godliness. You know, some folks in the Crete church, in the churches in Crete, they profess to be Christians, but their lives denied that profession. We encounter that, don't we? People say, oh no, I'm a Christian too. Oh no, me too, man. High five. I'm a Christian too. But their lives don't show it. I don't want to be that person. The decision is good. Living it out is better. The word that Paul preaches reveals a savior. Okay. God's grace brings salvation, not condemnation. And living out your salvation brings sanctification. It's a thing. Well, who Paul is why he's here, then he goes into his stuff about Titus, doesn't he? His buddy, his pal, the one he's writing this letter to. In verses 4 through 5, which we're going to just cover a very little bit, and then we're going to wrap up, is he talks about Titus. Oh, I love this part. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We're going to stop right there. Who is Titus? Titus is a couple of, has a couple of different things here that we understand about Titus in this brief little piece of information. The first thing we know about Titus is he's a test case. Do you know what that means? He's a test case. Here's why. Last week, you'll know, we talked about Titus and we said that he was a Greek believer, Okay, so he's a guy that we believe, he was non-Jewish, and he came to know Jesus probably because of Paul and his ministry. He didn't need to convert to Jewish law or tradition to receive the gospel. And for the Jewish people that were following Jesus, or at least inquiring and trying to figure this Jesus guy out, that blew their minds. Because they're like, dude, we've done all these things for so long, how come you guys are just grafted in? You guys will love this. This is... is (laughs) In my notes right here, it says, don't talk about circumcision. So I'm going to talk about it real quick. <laughs> I even said last night, I went on and on about circumcision. I'm like, ooh, we got to cut that. That's not... Well, the only reason I bring it up, which I wasn't supposed to bring it up, is because at the time, that was one of the things we know about Titus, is there was this big, weird discussion about when he became a believer, well, he should be circumcised. And Paul's the one who said, no, man, the beauty of being a believer in Jesus Christ is you no longer have to abide by all these rules and regulations and things that we thought were what got us closer to God. And some of the people that maybe had been circumcised didn't really love that 
But that's essentially the kind of thing we're talking about. He's a test case. He's standing up to the church and saying, I've accepted Jesus and I have an eternal salvation that I've gained from understanding who he is and following after him and making a decision for him. He's a test case. The second thing about Titus, Paul says, I love this. He calls him a true child of the common faith. Wasn't that precious, darling? A true child. He uses the same term Paul does when he writes to Timothy. He wrote two letters to his buddy Timothy. Remember, they were written probably around the same time. Um, But the thing that's beautiful about this is that when he says the term common faith, I love that. You know why? Because when he says common faith, he's saying that he's certain of Titus's faith. He's, he's certain that he understands who Jesus is and is living it out as he should. He's also saying that we have a common understanding. We're all on the same page, although our delivery sometimes may look different, right? There's so many different churches that are not called Rock Point Church 2, Rock Point Church 3, but we all have a common faith, Right? So many people in this room go to different churches, but we all have this common faith. He goes on to say, he's a test case, he's a common child, a a true child of the common faith. And then he says, he says, um, he gives him this blessing. And he says in verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus needs grace and peace through Jesus our Savior. Anybody else? We all do, don't we? I love this. This is where I kind of get into it a little bit. I'm like, ooh, ooh, okay. Was Titus like me? Like, I love words of affirmation, but I don't receive them very well, but I love them. I need them, you know? And so I wonder, was Titus discouraged? Did Titus need to be reminded that he had the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ? Maybe Paul knew that about him. He knew his little buddy Titus so much. I mean, he's like his son in the faith. He, he loved him. I love that he shared that with him. He gave him this blessing. Well, the thing about the blessing, the grace and peace, it only comes through the Savior, which is what he says right there, the grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Important note about the word Savior. It's a big word. It's a word in, 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 in where we live. We hear it a lot, right? We don't think a lot about it, but I want you to know that the word Savior is used 12 times in the New Testament. And are you ready for this? Six of those times are in this letter. It's critical. Paul understands that they understand that Jesus wasn't just a guy who said good stuff. He was the Savior of the world. Six times you're going to see the word Savior as you read the book of Titus. They needed to understand their Savior. You know, Jesus in the book of uh, John in, in chapter 14, if you'll, if you'll remember, I'm sure you all have it memorized, right? Right? No problem? No. There was a time, it was the night before Jesus knew that he was going to be taken. And he had his 12 and he had them in a room and they were flipping out. And they were scared and tensions were high and everything was a little nerve-wracking and they're looking to Jesus to tell him everything is going to be okay. And you know what? He, he didn't really say it like that. This is what he said in chapter 14, verse 25, to the scared 12. He says this, All this I have spoken while still with you. Meaning he just gave him this big, long monologue of things that they needed to understand. Looking at him face to face. Listening with their faces. Looking in his eyes. And then he says this. Can you even imagine what they felt like? But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. Everything's going to work out fine and you're going to be super peaceful because you knew me. He's going to say, I have peace to give you that nobody else can give you. And it's going to blow the minds of people around you watching because they're going to watch you walk into this crazy, terrible time and you're going to have peace. That's what he's talking about. I love the fact that Paul is saying to Titus, you're going to need this. You're going to need to remember the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And you're going to really need to remember that there is a peace that you only get through him. The rest of the world isn't going to be able to give it to you. Jesus himself said that. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Say it again. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And true peace, true peace only comes from Jesus. Have you ever encountered people in your life who you see them in the midst of something amazingly difficult and they have this weird vibe, this weird like, huh, that's... And it's not medication. But it's something about them that makes you want to be near them. Something about them that even though they're going through the darkest thing, it's like you want to sit at their feet and hear, how are you doing this? Because I don't understand this. Do you have any of those people? Have you seen those people? I have a person like that in my life right now. She's a friend I've known since childhood, and she just lost her 15-year-old son. And you know what? The, the, the announcement that she made, she had tons of people in the community, a lot of you probably know her, who've been following this story because it's a beautiful story of faith. It's a beautiful story of hope. It's a beautiful story of strength of the church, the big C church, rising up to love her family well. But you know what I found really interesting? Is the day that she had to make the announcement that her son didn't make it, she wrote this beautiful, amazing testimony to how good God is. And he is faithful. And he's the same God as he was yesterday when the heart transplant occurred, as the same God when, when Jacob breathed his left breath. Same God. I don't understand that piece. And you know why? Because right now, in my moment, in my life, right now, I, uh, I'm not, God hasn't gifted me with that piece. But for her, he knew, like he did the disciples, I know it's coming. And I'm going to love you enough that I'm going to grant you the grace and the peace that surpasses all understanding. So when you see these words together, and you see them often in the New Testament, if you go you just, you know, for nightly reading, just read some of the other letters, you're going to see that's a common greeting in the New Testament, grace and peace. But don't think of it as, hey, what's up? It's bigger than that. And so Paul knew that his pal Titus was perhaps walking into something that might be one of the hardest things he's had to do so far. I don't know. But he knew he needed grace, a reminder of it, possibly because he was going to have to give it out. And he knew he needed peace. Grace and peace. That's what Titus needed. 
Well, why is Titus here? Titus is here at this time, and Paul tells him, this is why you're here. He even says it this way, this is why I left you in Crete. Titus probably knew, but boy, to hear it from Paul might have been more meaningful. He, he, and you may have heard this before, like four other times during the course of this lecture. Titus is here for this reason, so that Jesus can be made known. Jesus can be made known. Now, here's how. How specifically? Paul has tasked him with finding and developing godly leaders. Finding and developing godly leaders. Um, I'm going to tell you this. That is not an easy job. So you think about, and we're going to see that. We're going to see that there are a lot of specific things that, that are required for a godly leader to be assigned to be an elder or an overseer of a church. It's hard. You know, but what Paul is, you're going to find as we go through this is Paul is going to make it very clear. Um, if you find none, that's better than finding the wrong ones. And so he's going to walk us through that. And next week we're going to talk very specifically about what each of these um, requirements and character traits are for these leaders. But as we wait and get to that, I wanted to share a couple of things with you guys before we close so you can think about godly leadership as you move into homework for next week, okay? Titus is here to make Jesus known by selecting and developing godly leaders. How does that even happen? What do we even know about a godly leader? Well, I was reading around a little bit about godly leadership, and John Maxwell, he's an author, and he, he's a Christian, but he talks a lot about leadership and business stuff. But he said something that I found really interesting, and I thought you might too. He said that even the most isolated person, there's, he cited the, um, the survey that did this, and uh, I don't know, let's pretend like I know what it is. I don't remember, but he says this. That even the most isolated person will influence 10,000 people during the course of their lives. 10,000 people. You think about that for a minute. That's the most isolated person. So now, stop and think about the, the job that Titus has to find these godly leaders who are going to develop and, 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 and guide these churches these churches who are going to bring in people who are lost in the Cretan culture, who are following Greek mythology, who are listening to half-truths and a lot of lies and don't really know what's going on, and he's going to put them in charge of these people. Eternal decisions are going to be made because of the people that Titus chooses. If, if a person who's an isolated person influences 10,000, how many more does a godly leader in a brand-new baby church going to influence. So this is no easy task. It's important. And so as you go into reading specifically about these elders and the requirements, I wanted to give you four things to think about um, that are required of godly leaders, okay? Four things that are required of godly leaders. And the first is, is that they are called but not always qualified. How's that make you feel? Called <laughs> but not always qualified. Um, have you ever heard of a guy named Moses, right? Never heard of that guy? There was this guy in the Old Testament. That's the left side of your book. And that's before Jesus came. And his name was Moses. And I'm not going to give you the whole layout, but you can read about him in the book of Exodus. But here's what's fascinating about Moses. He was born a Levite, but he quickly got himself into a situation where he was raised as an Egyptian. Okay, so he has kind of this dual citizenship, right? No. Here's the thing about Moses. By the time all of it was found out, he basically was deemed a misfit by both groups of people. And so you know what he did? He ran. 
He ran. He was like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going. And then he met his wife and he thought, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. I'm living in the, out here and I'm a shepherd and I've got a wife and kids and this is my life now because, well, well then God said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase you. He ran away. God chased him. And in the middle of all that, he's out in the middle of a field. And in Exodus 3, this is what blows my mind, called but not always qualified. In the middle of all of that, he goes up onto a mountain and God speaks to him through a burning bush. Remember we spoke about that a little bit last week. He talks to him and here's what he says to him. That I'm going to need you to be the one who's going to lead my people. And you know what Moses says? You're going to want to write this down. And you might remember. You, might, this, you can memorize this verse. Ready? Why me? Why me? And God answers him, because I'll be with you. He doesn't give him a list of all the great qualifications he has to be this godly leader, does he? Not one. He says, because I'm with you. And so when you look at godly leaders and people that you follow, let me say this, follow people who don't claim to be qualified, but instead point to the glory of God. We say that in our Bible studies. Um, all of these leaders that are choosing to, be, um, the, to, choosing to be your small group leaders, I will promise you this. None of them came to us with a resume and said, okay, so I came from this church, and I'm so good at facilitating questions, and I can redirect like the hardest people. I'm so good at it. Every one of them, every, I'm looking at you, every one of them came to us when we asked them, would you please consider leading a small group? You know what they said? Oh, I cannot do that. And we're like, that's the girl. Called, not qualified, because then you point to God. The second a godly leader is confident in God, not in their self. It kind of goes back to the same idea that you don't believe that you can do it. You believe that God can do it. The third thing about godly leaders is that they tackle God-sized problems that seem virtually impossible. They tackle God-sized problems that seem virtually impossible. In the Old Testament, there's this other guy named Nehemiah, and I won't go into all that, but let me just tell you about him briefly. He was a cupbearer to a king. Okay, talk about a resume. And God took that guy and had him build a wall and became a spiritual leader for the people of God when they re-entered Israel. Uh, he didn't have a good resume. But God knew that he could tackle God-sized problems. The fourth thing about godly leaders is that, oh, this is so huge. They are the same in public as they are in private. And when you read through some of these things, like I know some of the, some, like verse 6, I think it talks about their children or believers and, and um, something about the wife. I want you to consider the fact that what he's trying to say is they don't live a certain persona out here and then go home and they're different. That is so true of godly leaders and it's so rare and it's so hard to find. Do you know people that appear too perfect? There's a problem. It's an Instagram filter. That ain't real. It's not true. No one was perfect but Jesus. Do you know people that have this battling with these two dichotomous personalities or personas or priorities, maybe online or at home, or they morph into a different person when they're around different groups, or they adopt cultural norms and change direction because of what the world tells them to do? You've got to have people that are going to say in public, this is who I am in Jesus Christ, and then they're going to live it out in private. Well, one thing that leaders are not, and then I'm going to close, leaders are not perfect. Leaders are not infallible, and they are not mistake-free. And I want to encourage you, and we'll talk more about this next week. When you see these leaders that have stepped up, remember most of the time they didn't exactly volunteer themselves. They got voluntold um, that the Lord had chosen them. I want you to know that you have a responsibility 
and that we have this great gift to be able to encourage them. We can give our explicit encouragement, number one. We can give charitable judgment and gracious feedback. And we can give them quiet patience. Notice it's, it, was, it was quiet patience. They need us to help lift them up so that God can lift them up to lead. Encouragement, quiet patience, charitable judgment. I, I don't know who you are or why you're here. God does. Paul knew who he was and why he was here. And he wanted to impart that truth and that purpose on Titus too. What is the truth and purpose that you're going to leave with today? I, I don't know. Um, I would suggest this, that you... Um, need to understand that what you believe about him is the most important thing about you. And, and that there are things in this world, people in this world that you are a slave to. And if you are not a slave to Jesus Christ, you are a slave to something or someone. If you're a slave to Jesus Christ, ask yourself, am I living that out like I believe it? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? He came for you. He came to set you free. He brought you to his word. He brought you to a Bible study. I don't know if some of you were sitting in here going, I cannot believe I am in this room with these people. He can. I was you. I was you. He wants the best for you. Why are you here? Decisions are good. Living out the decision is better. Will you choose to do that? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go get our kids and go eat lunch. How about that? Father, thank you so much for Paul. Thank you that he was a slave and that you sent him and that you chose him and that you sanctified him and that you want that same testimony for all of us. And God, um, I don't know where everybody is in their walk with you, Lord, or some are probably standing on the precipice of what potentially could be a relationship with you. But God, you know. You know exactly who they are, exactly what they need, and exactly what you're calling them to, God. Will you make it clear today? If you're stirring something in us, Father, we want to act on that. We don't want to just say that we make a decision and that's a good decision. We want to live out the decision. We want to dance around in a church with a bunch of crazy kids and know that we're doing it because of you. Thanks for loving us, God. Thanks for trusting us like you entrusted Paul. You call us to be apostles, God. I don't understand it sometimes, and sometimes I question you on that, but there's a reason that you do. Thank you. Father, we, um, we just thank you for this place. We thank you for the opportunity to live in a place where we can openly and freely carry around your word, your love letter to us about who you are and why you sent your son. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.